On this episode of The Playbook, I have Damian Mander, founder and CEO of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. And we're going to talk about how exponential growth, compound interest, and acceleration work in negative behaviors favor. Join me for all this and more on The Playbook. This is Entrepreneur's The Playbook, where each week I bring you some of the greatest athletes, celebrities, and entrepreneurs to talk about their personal and professional playbook to success and what made them champions on the field and in the boardroom. I'm your host, David Meltzer. I have a friend from down under, Damian Mender. Welcome. He is the CEO and founder of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. And I want to start off real quick, Damian, because I, you know, travel internationally, understand all the critical business issues that surround some international issues that most Americans may or may not even be aware of, let alone the impact that it has here Mm. in the United States. Poaching being one of them. I do so much in Africa, North Africa, and understanding all of the critical business issues. Mm. What are some of the issues you think here, you know, being here, understanding that Americans uh, in particular should know, let alone everyone around the world, about what impact poaching's having on the world? Well, we're in the middle of the, the greatest example in history. Uh, a civilization's been brought to its knees by the way we treat nature, and that's COVID. Uh, we're looking at, at, at millions of people dying, billions of, uh, of people in lockdown, and we're going to be in trillions of do- dollars of, of deficit. And that's because we're trying to fix things after the fact. Uh, if we invest some of that money into looking after nature in the first place, us as a global community, not just America, not just Africa or Australia, but us as a global community are going to be able to get, uh, get in front of these things in the future. And that's, I think that's really the key message we've got to take away from COVID. The, the tougher this situation gets, I think the better the outcome is going to be on the other side. But we re- need to realize we're not the main act. We're part of a big machine. Uh, and the greatest uh, self-regulating system we have on this planet is nature. And we can't keep treating it like a toilet. And how did your background your upbringing and education bring you to the point where you have, you know, literally dedicated your entire life to raising the awareness and having such a great impact on the earth. Yeah. Well, thanks very much, David. I appreciate those words, mate. I do. It's true. Uh, Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Not taken lightly either. Uh, I I served uh, in the military uh, as a Navy clearance diver. Uh, it's like Australia's version of, of the, the SEALs. SEALs and then onto uh, tactical assault group East within special operations, did a bunch of years in Iraq. And then like many people leaving the services, you sort of leave this mission uh, and this this tight network of people around you, you know, you know the, the, the units you're in, guys that are watching your back more than you care about your own life yourself. And then all of a sudden the mission stops, the network stops and you've got to try and, and figure out the what next. And I, I ended up, uh, you know, drugs and alcohol was a was a, an easy place for me to try and forget about the time in Iraq and and the the, the transition I was trying to make back in a, into normal life. There's no jobs for a sniper in the, in the local newspaper when you get back <laughs> home, you know. Just, uh, in the movie, just in the movies. Just in the movies, man, yeah. <laughs> I still do cash jobs if anyone's interested. <laughs> nice. uh, but uh, That's a first for the playbook. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, look, I, I was one of the lucky ones, hey. When I hit rock bottom, I, I bounced. Uh, a lot of guys, and I say this, it's, we do this interview here today in America. 22 veterans in America commit suicide every single day. Uh, so I was one of the lucky ones that, that found purpose. And I think purpose is the most elusive thing in life. I found purpose in, in wildlife and in conservation and, and in imparting my skills and what I'd learned, the mistakes we'd made uh, into nature conservation. And how does poaching specifically, right? Like, so sustainability, the environment, saving yeah. the earth itself and its resources, I think are a forefront of concern for most people around the yeah. world and 
particular in America, but I don't think they can make the connection between poaching and how that helps sustain our entire global uh, sustainability or our global health. Let's put it yeah, for way. sure. Uh, I mean, our future as a civilization is dependent on our willingness to preserve biodiversity. Uh, uh, if anyone read um, E.O. Wilson's book, you know, probably the f- foremost bi- biologist of our time, his, his Pulitzer Prize winning book, Half Earth, in that he says, for us to ex- uh, stop our acceleration into the sixth mass great extinction on this planet, for the first time in history, it's a human-made phenomenon. For us to stop that acceleration, we need to set aside half of the planet for nature. Uh, and, and at the moment, we are sitting at about 17%. Now, one of the biggest threats that nature faces is uh, illegal wildlife trafficking, uh, one of the, the largest criminal industries in the world behind drugs, guns, human trafficking, and, and counterfeiting. Uh, so this is, this is a huge issue, not just in Africa, uh, but around the world. And this is the illegal taking of, of nature, whether it be logging, whether it be wildlife. It, it's, it's, it's ripping apart nature and, and not putting anything back. And this is... This is what I'm focused on. I mean, there's, there's ways that this can be fought uh, in other places. For example, demand reduction. There's, there's organizations that specialize in demand reduction as much as we specialize in on the ground. There's people working in policy, uh, regulations. There's people working in transnational crime. Our dance space is, is on the ground at the coalface uh, in Africa, stopping poaching from happening on the ground. And you know, one of the lessons that I teach is in exponential growth and acceleration. And when I say that, it's usually with entrepreneurs telling them, look, persistence needs to be blended with patience. Yeah. Uh, and com- compound interest and acceleration and, com- and, uh, and exponential growth, it works in negative behavior's favor. What I mean by that is if you have an intention that's good mm. and you're working hard to build your business, and things are doubling, well, it takes about 90% of the way before you're 25% of the way there. Then in the next 5%, you're 50% of the way there. And then the next 5%, you're 100% of the way there. Well, especially with poaching and in the environment, and you talk about 50% of the world's resources needs to be uh, assigned to or led available to our wildlife. Well, the problem is it works in the negative behavior's favor because we're so arrogant, ignorant, and uh, short-term visionaries that the world could be halfway full and everyone on earth say, oh, we're fine. Yeah, We, we have the 50%. The problem is if the resources are doubling that are necess- necessary every 20 years, well, we're only 20 years away from the world 100% of the resources for humans. And then 20 more years, two worlds are needed. Yeah. And then four worlds are needed. And I find that this acceleration and compound interest aspect in poaching is very dangerous. So we need to educate, educate people now to slow down the exponentiality. What are some of the things that you do with the foundation to slow down that exponentiality? Absolutely, uh, th- and thank you. So we, we started off as a service provider, going out to other organizations, working in conservation and being uh, essentially security services. We stopped being a service provider. We started buying our own land, our own leases. Uh, we stopped focusing on species like elephant and rhino and started focusing on biodiversity. And then we stopped looking at parks in isolation and started looking at big wide open landscapes. Uh, our program, Akashinga, uh, which translates in local Shona dialect uh, in Zimbabwe, is the only network of nature reserves in the world to be completely managed and protected by women. Uh, we started with one reserve of around 90,000 acres protected by 16 women. Uh, we now have 240 staff, eight reserves and a portfolio of 1.3, acre, uh, 1.3 million acres. Uh, 
with uh, long-term land leases varying from 20 to 45 years. Uh, we are going to continue scaling that model uh, with a long-term vision of wildlife and biodiversity conservation in Africa. And that, that is essentially, if, if that was all I did for the rest of my life, uh, that uh, coupled with uh, capacity building uh, with Indigenous uh, leadership uh, within existing conservation organisations, then I couldn't think of a better way to, to, to use my skills uh, to protect the natural world. Uh, we, uh, we are on target to be uh, protecting 20 reserves by 2026 with a staff of 1,000. That's amazing. Now, one of the things I always tell people, I'm an expert at sales. I build sales teams. I coach sales teams, et cetera. And they'll ask me, well, you know, who's the best salespeople that you know? And I always say, the rabbis. Yeah. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, I have never met a rabbi I can say no to. I give my donation yeah. every time they hit me up. Yeah. But running a foundation requires money. Yeah. And a lot of people that come in with big hearts, open minds, open hands, and, and you know this great intention fail because they're incapable. They have great intention, but yeah. they're incapable of the pragmatic side of raising money. But I've found that people who run foundations like yours that are successful have a great sales skill. Yeah. And for you, what are some of the techniques or skills that you have because you come from, you know, basically what are our seals in America, right? You're yeah. a sniper, a survivalist. You have great yeah. skills in the environmental and, and physical side of things. Yeah. But you obviously can quantifiably articulate value. What are some of the things you use to help uh, the foundation raise money? Well, the, uh, I worked in some of the most elite uh, military units in the world. And uh, there's no one I ever worked with or for that wouldn't do first what they were asking of me and when i set this foundation up i, I wanted to lead by example uh, i did fairly well in, in residential property investment in australia and i liquidated an entire portfolio and put it into the startup of this organization non-for-profit non shifted my own personal mindset from, from personal capital gain uh, into what can i do from a philanthropic standpoint and that that has created the base for this foundation to grow when i open up a, a conversation about funding i'm all in and people know that and uh to be able to, I think, radiate that, that level of dedication to anyone that I'm talking about funding and the level of commitment that we're going to put into our programs and making sure that people's impact is reached with the funding that they're investing and the trust that they're giving us, I think that's the most important thing you can have. When people give their lives to a cause, yeah. you know, I ran the most notable sports agency in the world, Lee Steinberg, who's a social change agent beyond being the best sports agent I've ever met. They made the movie Jerry Maguire about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. But more importantly... You know, a lot of athletes, uh, we always require them to uh, donate or create a cause or a foundation mm. that's passionate or purposeful for them. But when people go all in that have been successful in other fields, in other industries, a lot of times they're regrets. Uh, there's no acknowledgement, recognition of the sacrifices or investment that they've made personally. Mm. And a lot of people even have regrets when they haven't gone all in and sold everything they had and put you know, yeah. their money in. But, but beyond the money, there's a commitment, a life commitment uh, that, you know, sometimes overwhelming. And I know you have a very high standard of pain uh, in understanding mm. purpose, but what helps you on those days where you feel as if, wow, I've taken on you know, I, I have a mission to empower over a billion people. Mm. So some days I look there and go, whoa, what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> you know, have there been days or when there are days where this doubt comes in of the impact you're going to have or the size mm. or scope or scale of the impact where you tell yourself something that you learned in the military or something you learned in business to help you move forward to that next day to change your mindset? 
Yeah, every one of those uh, uh, incidents or days is an opportunity and and I'm grateful for it. It's an opportunity to make me stronger uh, the next day. Uh, Having got through that day and and dealt with the problems, you know, when a problem arises itself, it's there to be dealt with. It's not there to suppress or go, shit, I wish it wasn't like this. It's there to be dealt with and the reason you're thinking about it is because it needs to be thought about. And that's the way I treat a problem or, or, or a bad day. And you know what? Uh, I'd rather have more more bad days than good days because the more I get through those problems, the stronger we're going to be as an organisation and me as an individual. Well, you and I are aligned with that. The problems, setbacks, mistakes, failures, I always say they're not punishment. Yeah. They're there to propel me to yeah. something better. When I think about propelling myself to something better, a better situation or to make the situation better, there has to be an element of faith. Yeah. Uh, you and I both have... Uh, been in a low spot. Mm. I always say my bottom had a basement. I lost over a hundred million dollars, surrounded myself with the wrong people, the wrong ideas, yeah. using and abusing drugs and alcohol and yeah. all types of aspects. But to that, I've learned lessons from it and, and made the best. School of, fees. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dummy tax. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, beyond for you, that, that mindset, how have you learned to help other people do the same thing? I think, uh, I mean, for me, doing, doing good is, uh, it's infectious. And it's, it's, not, it's not as though I set out and just mapped this whole thing from the beginning. It, it, it gained momentum as we went along. It started by doing something good and then wanting to do more. And in, in a selfish way, David, uh, doing good things makes me feel good. It does. Doing good things for others or for a cause or for a mission, it makes me feel good. And, you know, what, what, I mean, we're all motivated by different things. And if, if someone wants to do th- something because they want the public to see them doing it, someone wants to do something because it makes them feel good or because they're helping someone else, whatever our motivation is, I think it's not always relevant. What is relevant is the outcome. Uh, and for me, you know, I, I tell people just take a first step. And a lot of people are scared of taking that first step. Doesn't matter if you're talking about business, family, uh, investment, uh, philanthropy. Just take the first step and don't be scared to make mistakes. Uh, you know, the biggest mistake is to sit there and live a life of comfort. Yeah, comfort is uh, the gobhoblin of uh, yeah. stagnant living. You know, one of the other things that I notice, I am the chairman of the Unstoppable Foundation, building villages in Kenya and schools, hospitals, organic farms. Uh, but a lot of it is around empowering women. Um, and I noticed you had mentioned, you know, you have this sustainable community to protect the wildlife in, in the area, but it was all women. Yeah. Um, I have three daughters myself, which led me to understand how not only my relationship with my mom was so significant to have a mother like mm. I did, but also as a father, to have a responsibility to help empower my daughters. Yeah. It's easy, you know, I have that little boy who's 11 to think, oh, I'm gonna empower him because I know what he knows, what yeah. you know, I've lived that life. But it's a big challenge as men to understand the empowerment of women and also, you know, what struggles and passions and, and purpose that they have. And yet, you know, there's a great importance in your foundation mm. with empowering women. I was hoping as, you know, a white male, yeah. you could talk about how this is an empowering thing and how important women are to this uh, cause. Yeah, uh, thank you. You know, uh, we, um, you know, I come from a background of working in, in, in perhaps the ultimate boys club, special operations. Uh, all the u- military units I served with were, were all males and I, I came into conservation at a time when conservation was becoming increasingly militarized and it, and it, it is a generally a, a male dominated industry where women are outnumbered on the front lines by a ratio of, of around 100 to 1 
uh, we were going out and having this ongoing sustained conflict uh, with local communities on a continent, Africa, that's going to have 2 billion people by 2040. For us, the, the responsibility became how do we find a way to have a long-term good relationship with the community and not a war? Uh, and I th- look, there's some context here in, in terms of we, we had a blank canvas to work on in conservation. And with that blank canvas, we found out that pushing women to the forefront of law enforcement shifts the dynamics of society for the better. Uh, we, we started a, a, an experiment, uh, this program, shifting all our staff to, to women in, in the new areas that had no staff in them at all. So shifting our, our methodology, we, we put women at the center of the conservation strategy. It was this greatest traction in community development. Conservation become a byproduct. Uh, but we essentially, we started this, this experiment in a, in a small landlocked country in sub-Saharan Africa on a continent that's had a, a 700% increase in armed conflict uh, over the last uh, decade in an industry, conservation, that's becoming increasingly antagonistic with local indigenous communities. All we did is we shifted the, the male roles to construction and labor. We put women into the power roles of law enforcement, decision-making, and management. Now, in doing that, we completely de-escalated uh, tension with local communities. Uh, we cut our core operating costs by two-thirds through demilitarization, uh, and we, um, we became more effective uh, than what we've ever been at conservation. Uh, the, the, the remaining third of the money uh, that we spent uh, on conservation is spent on women's empowerment. And that's the most effective uh, dollar that can be spent on rural community, community development in, in Africa. Uh, now, if this is possible in Zimbabwe, what's possible beyond that country and what's possible beyond the, the industry of conservation? I think women, if, if given the opportunity, and that's all they were given here, but if given the opportunity, they can change uh, much more than the face of conservation. Uh, they have in our communities as well in Kenya. We agree fullheartedly. Last question real fast. It's interesting because I think the biggest challenge that we have, you talked about earlier, being in this comfort zone. Yeah. It's apathy. Yeah. That as we've elevated the quality of living worldwide through technology and connectivity, that even I can walk in the Bagani in the middle of the Masamai and have a coaching call with my ear pods on and better mm. connection than I get in, you know, Orange County here. And I'm not lying. People, <laughs> I can relate people, to that. Hey? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy hey. where you get connectivity these days. But I think to myself, you know, there's a lot of entitlement. Uh, there's a lot of ignorance, but apathy. Um, and for me, you know, I have studied geologic time. I study math in the resources that we have. Uh, and I think one of the biggest challenges that we face politically, economically, educationally, and sustainable issues that we have is just apathy. Yeah. We're a reactionary community. We're a reactionary yeah. world. And the problem is you can react to COVID with trillions of dollars and get testing and all the things that we do that have saved us from the first time in mm-hmm. our existence that people around the world together are questioning human existence. Yeah. But what I don't think people understand is the issues that you're fighting, the issues that you're challenged with, we can't afford to be apathetic about. Mm. It's okay we were apathetic about a virus. Yeah. But when you're talking about exponential compound interest of resources and growth, that if we don't do it now, yeah. are we able to recover? Will If we don't start taking action now, will we be able to recover from the mistakes that we're making? We, we are a civilization, we're a species that responds exceptionally well when we push far enough into a corner. And when we look at the way we've been able to, to, to mobilize uh, in times of crisis. And 
I hope we've been pushed far enough into a corner now to start making the changes that are required. If you look from a philanthropic standpoint to give a, a framing of where our mindset is though, last year there was around $456 billion given to philanthropy in the United States. Uh, around 30% of that went to religion, uh, 14% to uh, education, 9% to healthcare. You take all environmental causes, climate change, conservation, animals, both domestic and wild, collectively that was 3%. We, we're not asking for people to completely turn the tables. We're asking for us to have the foresight to, to, to find some balance in where our priorities are. And if we just invest some into nature in the first place, we're not going to have to worry as much about the other things. And I think that's what we need to get away from this sort of hand-to-mouth mindset that we have. Uh, and you know, We're talking to people that are out there looking into these cameras today, uh, watching us on their screens. They've got children. They've got children, and those children are going to have their grandchildren. What kind of world are we going to bring those kids into? You know, we can't, we've got to think beyond our, our own day, our own lives, our, our own lifetime and think to the future. And, and not just for our sake, from a selfish standpoint, but for the sake of everything else that we've, we've been given here. Do you know the odds of being born, David? The odds of us being born, of you being you and me being me, and I studied this, I looked this up, 400 trillion to one. And people out there are sitting going, oh, geez, I'm waiting for this, I'm waiting for that. I, you know, what's the afterlife going to be? Fuck, I'm telling you one thing. We have already won the lottery. This is it. A handful of decades to do as much as you can. Don't fuck it up. I love it. I love you being a catalyst to push people into that corner to raise the awareness so that people take action. And I'm certainly glad that you were one of the lottery winners along with me for that multi-trillion to one odds to be here so that we can help people in future generations. As a father of four children, I got choked up and I could tell you did too as well when you were talking about creating a legacy and a place that's better than the one that we live in today. I certainly appreciate it. I have Damien Mandur here, founder and CEO of the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, which is not just a specific foundation, but more a message I see, a movement that we have to uh, utilize, not just for poaching, but for sustainability of the human race and the world that we share. Thank you so much, Damien, for joining me. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Playbook as much as me. On a personal note, I just wanted to thank everyone for making The Playbook such a success. Don't forget to continue it by sharing, subscribing, and listening to your favorite episodes. This is Dave Meltzer with The Playbook.